Okay, well, good morning. Good to see you guys. God bless you for coming out. Snowy day. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2? If you're just joining us, a few weeks ago we started a new book on Sunday mornings, the book of 1 Samuel, which we said uh, opens up at one of the blackest and lowest points in Israel's history, the period of the Judges. And if you don't know what that's all about, read the book of Judges this week, you'll see how bad it really was. But right around the time it seemed like the, whole, the nation was hopeless and was going down for good, God laid his hand on a woman named Hannah, who had been praying for years for a son. She was barren and uh, just crushed in her spirit that God had not seen fit to give her a son and came to a point of brokenness where she prayed eventually and finally, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you all the days of my life to serve you. And that's what God was waiting for. And Hannah then conceived and she bore a son. And we've been studying about that. That son would be used by God, Samuel, to lay the groundwork for a great revival in the nation. Now, we've outlined the first part of this book that deals with Hannah this way. Hannah's suffering, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Hannah's supplication, chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. Hannah's son, chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. And then finally this morning, Hannah's song, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now, although 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10 is technically a prayer, it's commonly referred to as Hannah's song because of its lyrical qualities and similarities, actually, to other Old Testament hymns like uh, the Song of Moses and Miriam in Deuteronomy chapter 15, or excuse me, Exodus 15, the Song of Deborah in Judges 5, and especially the Song of David in 2 Samuel 22. Now, Hannah's song, as I've studied this, reminds me very much of Mary's Magnificent, Mary the mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1, also known as Mary's song. And I believe that Mary was a godly young woman, of course, and she was a woman of the Scriptures, only maybe 15 or 16 when she conceived. Uh, but she knew the Scriptures, and I'm sure she loved Hannah and knew the story of Hannah and pretty much probably memorized her song. And I see in Mary's song, she kind of patterns it after Hannah's song. And we'll see that a little bit more this morning. Now, the reason I love to study the prayers in the Bible is because we can learn an awful lot about God's character, about the proper way of approaching Him, and what's important in our Christian lives as to how we see things, you know, and uh, how we need to be uh, Christ-centered, God-centered, not self-centered, all right? So we'll look at that this morning. One more thing, there are many who see the song of Hannah as being prophetic. Yes, You'll hear throughout the song, she's praising God for giving her victory over her enemy, which is Penina, the other wife of her husband, Elkanah. Uh, Elkanah married Hannah first, but Hannah was barren. So he married Penina, and Penina was very fruitful and brought forth a lot of children for, uh, for Elkanah, something that she always rubbed in, in Hannah's face. And so now God has given her a son, Hannah. And you can hear through this song of praise that she's thanking God for delivering her from uh, her enemies' persecution and criticism. However, as you read the language uh, in Hannah's song, you see it goes beyond any kind of a uh, conflict she had with Penina. Actually, it kind of scopes out into the future and encompasses the struggles of all of God's people, Israel, over their enemies. 
and how when Messiah comes to the earth, he will defeat those enemies, establish a glorious kingdom on the earth in the kingdom age. So you see that in this too, all right? Now, I've divided Hannah's song into seven parts. The joy of the Lord, verse 1. The uniqueness of the Lord, verse 2. The omniscience of the Lord, verse 3. The sovereignty of the Lord, verse 4 through 8. The omnipotence of the Lord, the end of verse 8. The protection of the Lord, verse 9. The justice of the Lord, verse 10. You're thinking, my goodness, how long are we going to be here today? Uh, we'll move quick, okay? We'll move quick. All right. First of all, the joy of the Lord, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies, Penina, because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, don't forget the context. Hannah has just left her son Samuel, the one she has prayed for for years. She has taken him to Shiloh after he's been weaned. She has left him with Eli, the high priest, to be raised in the house of God, never to return home again. She could have left weeping, but instead she left rejoicing. In fact, she breaks into a song of praise. One commentator remarked, and I quote, The world doesn't understand the relationship between sacrifice and song how God's people can sing their way into sacrifice and sacrifice their way into singing, end quote. That's so true. We see this all throughout the scriptures. You remember, of course, that Jesus and his disciples observed the Passover before then going to the Mount of Olives where he would spend the rest of the evening in prayer, finally be arrested and crucified the next morning. But before they left the upper room on their way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus, knowing full well what was coming, he leads his disciple in a song of praise. This is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, just singing God's praises, even though he knew what was coming. We know that Paul and Silas sung hymns to God after they had preached in Philippi, were arrested, beaten, and thrown into a Philippian dungeon. Around midnight, it says they were singing songs to the Lord of praise, and the other prisoners were listening. Hey, these guys are singing songs to God? They just were beaten and thrown into a dungeon? What's with these guys? Well, Paul had a chance to tell him. We see in many cases, many psalms that David wrote, he frequently was praising God even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And of course, in Acts 5, we see how that after the apostles were beaten by the leaders in Jerusalem for preaching in the name of Jesus, it says how they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer this beating for their Savior. Look, how can the people of God find joy in difficult circumstances and even praise the Lord in the midst of pain? Listen to me. It's because we put his glory before our own pleasure or earthly happiness and we keep our eyes on eternity. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. As Paul is about to share with us the secret of living a joyful life in the midst of many trials and persecutions which Paul was no stranger to, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He said, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Paul says, The way I get from day to day, and all the suffering I endure and all the persecution is I keep my eyes on eternity. I remember that I'm serving the Lord and it's His glory 
that I put before my happiness or my pleasure. And I remind myself each day that what I'm doing for God now is laying up for myself treasures in heaven that will never fade away. So we don't keep our eyes on the temporal, we fix our eyes on the eternal. And Hannah, in offering her son to the Lord, didn't feel sorry for herself, that she couldn't keep her son for herself. She saw her son as an offering to God to be used by him for his glory. And in this, Hannah rejoiced. She rejoiced in her sacrifice. Years ago, I was reading a little book uh, about the life of Martin Luther. And if you know anything about Martin Luther's marriage to his wife, Catherine, you'll know they had a great marriage, okay? A really great marriage. He used to call her Katie, <laughs> my rib. Um, and they just, he just, they just loved each other. But Martin was gone a lot, serving the Lord, and Catherine missed him quite a bit. And so one day she approached him, and she was very sad. And she said, you know, I'm, it really hurts me and pains me that you're gone so much and I can't be with you. And Martin Luther said to her, Katie, are you crying over your lambs? And the idea was when the Jews brought a lamb to the Lord to be sacrificed, they didn't cry over it. They rejoiced that they were giving to God an offering. And he was telling her, Katie, the fact that you're giving me up, time that you could spend with me for me to serve the Lord, that's your offering to God. Don't cry over it. Rejoice that God is using me and you are allowing me to do the work of God because of your unselfishness. It's an offering to God. Something we all need to take to heart when we offer God anything we you know. Don't come to church when you have to, and you're involved in ministry, going, oh man, I don't go to church today and serve, blah, blah, blah. No, you rejoice that you get to serve. You don't have to serve, you get to serve. It's all in the mind, right? It's a mindset. Well, we read in verse 1 again that Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, when Hannah, Hannah mentions her horn, this was a common thing among the Jewish people. All right, uh, She was speaking of an animal horn. Because in the Jewish mind, the horn of an animal spoke of its power. So they would typically use that uh, when they were talking about their own power or strength. And what she's basically doing is praising God for lifting her out of the despair of barrenness and giving her new strength. Basically, she is thanking God for saving her from her enemy, which is what she means by saying, I rejoice in your salvation. She's rejoicing that God has saved her from the mocking ridicule of Penina, basically. But the word salvation there is Yeshua in the Hebrew. And does that word sound familiar to us? It's the name of our Savior. Jesus is the Greek for Yehoshua, or Yeshua for short. Joshua in the Hebrew, Jesus in the Greek. So in this regard, Hannah becomes a type of the whole nation of Israel, who is going to rejoice someday that the Lord will deliver them from all their enemies, when the Messiah comes, he will establish a glorious kingdom, and they will rejoice with him forever. It kind of reminds me of the song of Zacharias. Remember, he was a priest. His wife Elizabeth had been barren for many years. They had prayed for a son for many years and uh, did not get one until finally one day the angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias and says that your wife, by this time next year, will have a son. You're to name him John. And he's going to lead his people in repentance and prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. Well, now Elizabeth has finally given birth to this son that they both waited 
so longed for. And he offers up a song of praise to God. Zechariah's song. Let me read it to you out of Luke 1. He says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Well, that is coming, and God will make good on that promise. So, first of all, we see in Hannah's song the joy of the Lord. Secondly, we see the uniqueness of the Lord. Verse 2, she said, No one is holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. In this verse, Hannah is praising God for his uniqueness as compared with all the other gods in the world. Uh, there are many people worship many different gods. And Hannah was extolling the uniqueness of her God, our God, as being unique above them all. Uh, reminds us of what Moses said in uh, Exodus 15 verse 11. When he said, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Lord, nobody's like you. You're unique. He said in Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, Moses speaking to the nation of Israel, the people, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other beside him. We know as Christians that the Bible teaches that our God is the only true and living God. The God of the Bible is alone the true God. He is God Almighty, and that makes Him unique. When she says that He is a rock, well, what she is saying is it speaks of the Lord's strength, stability, and steadfastness, and magnifies the fact that He never changes. He's the only solid foundation we can build our lives and eternity upon, and no, will never be moved, because He never changes. God himself said, I am the Lord God, I change not. In fact, it reminds me of a hymn that we sometimes sing here at Calvary. It goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And the chorus goes, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Guys, in these days of pluralism and tolerance, many are building their lives, and whether they know it or not, their eternities, on different gods that are not God and cannot save them. Contrary to what many believe, there are not many roads that lead to heaven. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. Look, Buddha isn't going to get you there. Muhammad isn't going to get you there. Brahman, the Hindu god, can't get you to heaven. Only Jesus Christ will get you there because he alone is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. Oh, I don't like that. It's too narrow. Then you better talk to him. Because I didn't say it. He said it. And if he's God as we believe he is, you better listen to what he has to say. Uh, if there's only one way, it's not narrow. It's truth. Okay? And he is the truth. Number three, she talks about the omniscience of the Lord. We read in verse three, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. Now, obviously, we can hear, you know, Panina, uh, her name, you know, on Hannah's heart there. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge. He's omniscient. And by him, actions are weighed. When we say God is omniscient, it means that he knows all things. He knows all things. God can't learn anything. He knows everything. 
Okay, he's omniscient. And in the light of that truth, the Holy Spirit speaking through Hannah exhorts us not really to talk proudly, arrogantly, uh, because God hears. And the Bible says, and we'll talk about this at the end, God, uh, the Bible says that God hears, and we will stand before him, everybody, and give an account someday of every word we have spoken, every action we have done, even every thought we have thought. Even Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for, uh, for it in the day of judgment. And that goes for all of our sinful actions. Hebrews 4.13, the writer said, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. Look, God heard all of Penina's proud and arrogant words that she spoke against Hannah in private and in public. And the idea is when Hannah says, For the Lord is the God of knowledge. He knows it all. Okay, He knows it all. And by him actions are weighed. And by that she means they're placed in the scales of judgment and weighed out. And God will give to those according to their deeds. Well, next she speaks of the sovereignty of the Lord. Verse 4. She says, The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. Look, the bulk of Hannah's song is magnifying the sovereignty of God. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he possesses supreme, absolute, and unlimited power to do whatever he chooses to do in the lives of peoples or nations because he is the ultimate sovereign of the universe. He can make the poor rich, as she says. He can make the rich poor. He can give life to those that have died. He can resurrect them if he chooses to. Or he can take the life of those who are living because he's the Lord of life. He gave that life to that person and he can remove it if that person chooses not to glorify him and lives contrary to what he has said. God can raise up kings, presidents, leaders. He can bring them down just as he can do the same with nations. He can raise them up and exalt them from a place of obscurity, but he can also bring them down and humble them. Now at this point, Mary's song in Luke 1 sounds very familiar. Why don't you turn to Luke 1? You can almost hear the song of Hannah in Mary's words. Luke 1, verse 47. She said, My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has sown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God is sovereign. Now look. The fact that God is sovereign or all-powerful 
is a great source of comfort to me. But only, listen, only because I know he is a God of love. He is a God of love. And therefore would never use his power to hurt me, but only to help and to bless me. Didn't God say this to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, where God said, I know the plans or the thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord. There are thoughts, there are plans of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. What God is saying is, look, I am never against you as my people. I am for you. I may chasten you if you deserve it, but I will never forsake you. Now, here's the thing. I'm always working for your eternal best. And sometimes to get your best eternity, I have to sacrifice some earthly comforts. When I do that, you may look at your circumstances and you may think that I don't love you. I'm not there and I'm not a good God. You have to base your understanding of me not on your circumstances, but on my word. I'm telling you I love you. I love you with an everlasting love. I'm telling you I have good in mind for you. I'm working for your eternal good. I am not your adversary. Paul the Apostle said, if God is for us, who can be against us? So we have to formulate our understanding of God, not based on our circumstances, but based on what he has said in his word. Now, the devil, he wants us to base our understanding of God on our circumstances. He is always pointing out our circumstances that they're not so great, saying, look, if God was really there, or if he was really a good and loving God, would he really allow you to go through this? So either he doesn't exist, or he's not so good and loving. That's the devil's way of always trying to run down God in our minds. And God is saying, look, don't listen to that. That is an attack of the devil. You know that in my word I have told you how much I love you. Trust me. Well, then in her song, she moves on to talk about the omnipotence of the Lord in the end of verse 8. She said, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he has set the world upon them. In other words, she's talking about the physical creation. Yes, the earth, but all of heaven, okay, all of the universe, all right? She's acknowledging that God is the creator of all things. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Now, the sovereignty of God would be impossible without the omnipotence of God. In other words, God couldn't do whatever he wanted to do, sovereignty, if he wasn't powerful enough to do whatever he wanted, omnipotence. Now, of course, the Bible acknowledges this all the way through. In Psalm 102, verse 25, we read, Of old you have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Lord, you created all things. You are an all-powerful, omnipotent God. Even Job acknowledged this in his trials. Job chapter 9, he says in verse 10, he does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. Verse 12. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Okay. Look at, you know, God is God. He's all powerful. When he does things, we can't say, what are you doing, God? God said, I'm doing whatever I want to do. Who are you? Look, let's get something straight, God says. I'm God, you're not. We can get that nailed down. We're in good shape. Okay. <laughs> We forget that. We want to challenge God. We want to say, God, why are you doing it this way? 
Okay, I wouldn't have done it this way. That's true, but God says you're not God. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. But it, it comforts me to know that not only is our God, does he want to do good for us, he has the power to do good for us. I mean, a God who wanted to do good for us but wasn't strong enough to do good for us wouldn't comfort us, right? Just like years ago, I heard a story of a father who had run out for just a, a little bit to the store, maybe get some milk, and when he came back, his whole house was engulfed in flames with his four children inside. He tried his best to get inside. He got three-degree burns trying to get it. The whole house was engulfed in flames, and he had to stand back and watch his children die in this fire. He wanted to help them. He just wasn't strong enough to save them. Our God wants to save us. He wants to help us. And praise him, he's strong enough. He's omnipotent. I mean, nothing is hard for our God. Nothing is impossible. We have to remember that. So she acknowledges the omnipotence of God. Look, if God, God, if you can create the whole universe, certainly you can help me with my little problem. Okay? That's the perspective we get when we read the prayers in the Bible. Hey, look, God is so big. What am I worried about? What am I worried about? He can do anything. He can, he can create the universe with a word. He can certainly help me in whatever problem I have. I'll give you two more. Next, she talks about the protection of the Lord. Verse 9, beginning part. He will guard the feet of his saints. He will guide the steps of his saints or his people is the idea. Now, here's the thing. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man or a good woman, in other words, somebody who's saved, somebody who's, who, whose God is the Lord, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. In other words, God delights in the person who is walking according to his truth. Okay, We see that from Psalm 56, verse 13. You have delivered my soul from death, the psalmist said. You have not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living. The light of the living. And the idea is that God establishes our steps in life. Listen, as long as we're walking in the light of his word, as long as we're walking in the light of it, didn't the psalmist say, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path? Conversely, those who refuse to walk according to God's truth, he can't protect. Now, sometimes those are God's people. Sometimes God's people will turn away from him. Sometimes we will begin to go our own way. Now, when we do, God can't do for us what he wants to do. If we choose to depart from his word, do our own thing, live contrary to what he has said, as much as it grieves him, he lets us go. Why? Because like the prodigal son had to leave his father's house to get beat up by his sin until he realized, hey, he had it pretty good. Sometimes we have to do the same thing. God knows that. Sometimes God says, look, my word is the best. My word is going to give you the best life possible. If you walk in my word, obey what I have said, I can bless you, watch over you, protect you. If you go your own way, I have to let you go. And when you get involved with sin and it beats you up long enough, hopefully you'll come back and you'll say, God, huh, uh, I guess I didn't know what I was, I was doing. And God says, that's true. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon spent most of his life doing a detour, living his own life, doing his own thing, thinking he knew what was best for his life. He knew it was going to bring him ultimate happiness and fulfillment. Only to come back at the end of his life and go, I, I made a big mistake. You know, I should have listened to God. 
I should listen to my dad who told me to listen to God and obey him. Look, God speaking through Jeremiah said, and this was at a time when Israel was pretty bad. God said to the nation, to Jeremiah the prophet, your own sins, your own backslidings are going to reprove you. In other words, sin has built into a consequences. And there are consequences God doesn't want us to have to bear, but they will tenderize our hearts if we get into sin. The consequences will beat us up enough where we'll eventually get, want to get right with them. But there are those who refuse to walk in God. They're not children of God. They know what the Bible says. They reject it. They mock it. And they refuse to live according to it. They are the rebels. And these people are going to someday, if they don't repent, they're going to be facing God in judgment. That's how she ends verse 9. But the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. In other words, the wicked, well, they're on their own, basically. Hey, the righteous, we walk in the light of God's truth, and the Bible says we'll never stumble in darkness, right? If we walk according to God's truth, His light, it will light our path in life, it will guide our way, and we will be blessed by God and watched over by God. But the wicked who decide they're going to do their own thing, God says, you're on your own. They will grope in darkness. It says it right here. The wicked shall be silent in darkness. What are they going to say? They can't blame God. I'm, I'm doing my own thing. They have nobody to blame but themselves for the consequences of their own actions. I like what Warren Worsby said along these lines. He said, and I quote, As God's people walk on this earth and walk in the light, the Lord will guard and guide their steps. But the wicked will walk in spiritual darkness because they depend on their own wisdom and strength. It may seem that the wicked haven't made, quote unquote, but one day the storm of God's wrath will burst upon them in fierce judgment. God is long-suffering with those who resist him, but their day is coming, end quote. And that really brings us to the final line in Hannah's song, which speaks of the justice of God. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, there are many today who believe that God will never punish sinners. He would never, you know, send people to hell. That, that's, that's just not God's a God of love. Why would God make a place like hell for people? He's a God of love. Well, if you read the Bible carefully, the Bible says God didn't create hell for man. God says he created hell for the devil and his angels, those who rebelled against him in heaven. However, if you want to follow the devil and his rebellion against God, God will let you follow him all the way to the place that God prepared for the devil and his demons. That's not what God wants. But this idea that God is a God of love, so he'll never judge anybody or send anybody to hell, folks, that's wishful thinking, not biblical truth. I mean, the psalmist said in Psalm 96, verse 13, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. He's coming. God is a God of justice. And all sin, listen, is a violation of his law and therefore is a crime against the holy God and therefore must be paid for. Now that's going to happen in one of two ways for every person that has ever lived. First of all, if they receive Jesus into their heart as their Lord and Savior, repent of their sins, then 
The Bible says at that moment his blood, Christ's blood, is applied to their account, and it's marked paid in full. Paid in full. They won't be held accountable for their sins because Jesus took their sins on his cross, died in their place. He paid the price. Those that reject Jesus, well, they will stand before him someday to be judged, and they will have to pay for their own sins. Now, we see that scene played out on Judgment Day in Revelation 20. Why don't you turn there? I'm sure most of you know this passage. Revelation 20, starting in verse 11, where John, who has this vision of Judgment Day, he writes this, and he says, and I quote, And I saw a great white throne, and one sitting on it, the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books, plural, were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death, uh, and, death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Actually, it says there were two books they were judged from. And a third book was also there, the book of life. But Jesus will judge all the... And these are all unsaved people, guys. Okay? The great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. Not for believers at all. Okay? It says that Jesus Christ will judge all... These unsaved people based on what was written in these books, plural. What books? Well, there's two of them. The first one is the Word of God. The Word of God. Remember in Psalm 96, we just saw how it says he's coming to judge the world and the peoples with his what? Truth. His Word. God's Word is his holy standard. In John 12, verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So the first book God opens to judge people by is the word of God. All right? This is where he says to them, look, here's what I said that you were not to do. Here's how you lived. And believe me when I tell you, God, you know, it's going to all be on the big screen. Talk about a jumbotron. God's got one. All right? And, and he's going to, you know, this is your life kind of thing. Yeah, this is it. God's going to play the whole deal. All right? Uh, no, nothing is going to be hidden, as we just said in Hebrews 4.13. Everything will be revealed. So the word of God, you know, here's what I said, here's what you did. I said this was sin, it was wrong. You said, no, I don't feel it's wrong. It doesn't matter how you felt. It only matters what I said, okay? So everyone will be held accountable for violating God's laws, his word. Secondly, the other book is the ledger, the ledger of God. What is this ledger? Well, Paul called it in Colossians 2.14. He called it in the NASB. Of course, he didn't quote the NASB, but the NASB quotes Paul. Called it the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Still a little vague. How about the New Living Translation? It, it, this ledger is the record that contained the charges against us, Paul said. And the context was that Jesus Christ has paid for those if you receive him. If you do not receive him, your ledger is not marked paid in full. You will stand before God someday to give an accounting, and he will judge you according to all the things you have done to violate his word because they're all written in his ledger. He keeps excellent records, by the way, of everything you've done in thought, word, and deed against what God has said. And the Bible says that every sin has been recorded. And the Ten Commandments, guys, are just part of it, okay? But every one is a violation of God's law. 
is a debt that that person must pay in hell. And we, we talk about even in our culture. Somebody commits a crime, they're arrested, they're, uh, they're tried, and they're found guilty, and they serve their time in prison. When they get out, we say that they've paid their debt to society. Because even in our, our culture, we see sin as a debt that is owed society. Well, all sin is a debt that is owed to God. That's why in the prayer, the model prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, you know, he said pray this way, guys. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's talking about the sins we commit we asking God to forgive us for. And again, people would say, well, I don't believe that. I believe God is a God of love. I don't think he's going to judge anybody. Again, that's wishful thinking. It's not biblical truth. Yes, God is love, okay? But you see, what unbelievers do is they try to separate God's character. You know, they, they, they try to parse it, okay, divide it up. They take God's love because they like that, and they put it over here. But they reject his righteousness, his justice, his holiness. God is God. God's love reached out to us through his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes, doesn't matter how bad your life has been, whoever believes in Jesus Christ and receives him as Lord and Savior will not go to hell, but will have everlasting life. That's God's love. But if you reject it, the wrath of God abides on you. The psalmist said in Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Look, God still loves the wicked. But he is angry for the wicked things they do every day. Now, you can have God's love and God's justice side by side. They're not mutually exclusive. The book of Ecclesiastes, verse, chapter 12, verse 14, we read, For God will bring every work into judgment. Listen including every secret thing. Look, guys, the king is coming. Hannah tells us that. He's coming to establish a kingdom on the earth. The end of verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn. Again, in other words, the strength. He will exalt the strength of his king, of his anointed the king that Hannah makes reference to is none other than the Messiah. She calls him his anointed. The word Messiah means the anointed one. Just like Christ in the Greek means the anointed one. She's talking about the Messiah who's coming to reign. Who is he? He's the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And when he comes to the earth, the first thing he's going to do is judge the wicked servants of the Antichrist, cast them into the lake of fire, and he will establish a kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. And after the thousand years, he will establish the great white throne judgment where he will resurrect all the dead who have died rejecting him. And they will stand before him to be judged. Jesus Christ is going to be, to every person who has ever lived, one of two things. Either a loving Savior or a righteous judge. And what he will be to you on that day will be determined by what you do with him today. If you fall on your knees, you confess your sins, you say, Lord, as I read your word, I understand I have violated practically everything in this word. I'm a sinner. But I know that you're inviting sinners to come to you, to receive you as Lord and Savior, that you might then 
cleanse me of my sins and give me an inheritance in heaven that I don't deserve, but that you're giving to me by grace. And so, Lord, I invite you into my heart. I repent. At that instant, Jesus' blood is applied to your account. You've passed from death to life. You'll never come into judgment. And Jesus, at that moment, becomes your loving Savior. If you reject him, someday you will stand before him. And then he will not be your loving Savior. He'll be your righteous judge. Even though I'm sure many will say, oh, I get it now. I get it now, Lord. Okay, yeah, let me bow the knee right now, okay? I'm going to bow right now and acknowledge that you're Lord. Well, Paul said that's going to be true. Someday every knee will bow, every time will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God. But if you wait to do that then, Jesus can't help you. You've got to do it right now, where you bow your knee to him and say, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Savior. You are my Lord. I want you to run my life. Be in control. He'll do that. Of course, if a person waits till they stand before him on the day of judgment, it'll be too late. So it's up to you guys to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. Are you going to make him your loving Savior, or are you going to wait and someday he'll be a righteous judge? That's up to every person individually. I pray that God gives everyone in this room grace to make the right decision now. Today is the day of salvation. If God's tugging on your heart, this is the day to say, i got to get my life right. And you give your heart to Christ. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, how awesome you are. And we thank you, Lord, that even as awesome and omnipotent as you are, you're still a God of love, a God of kindness, a God of compassion, who is inviting sinners to be saved by receiving your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just pray that everyone in this room, everyone is going to hear this online or CD or whatever, radio, that Lord, you will touch their hearts, open their eyes, and they would receive you right now, Lord Jesus. That nobody would have to stand before you on judgment day in their own goodness, which is no goodness. We just pray, Lord, that you'll just touch everyone's heart. The devil has deceived so many the thinking because you're a God of love, you'll never punish sin. We thank you that you're a God of love, but we also know you're a righteous and holy God, a God of justice who must punish sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give them grace to understand that, that they would receive Jesus right now, Father. We just thank you, Lord, go before us. Bless our week with health, safety, and productivity for us and our families, that we might walk in the light and be a witness to those in darkness. We thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.